Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 314 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I'm so glad we're on this journey together. Whatever today finds you doing, thanks for joining. Uh, Really appreciate it. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire and Lifeway Leadership. Got lots of uh, fun stuff to talk to you about. Plus, we are announcing for the first time, took us a long time to get through all the entries, uh, the winner of the 10 million download giveaway. So stay tuned for that. Also, just want to say thank you for uh, getting the word out. We had uh, an incredible year of growth on the podcast in 2019. Looking forward to that in 2020. If this episode or if this show helps you, could you let others know about it? There's a couple of ways you can do it. One is to share on social. The other is to leave a rating or review on iTunes. So I was just in there recently and saw a bunch more reviews. Thank you. We have over 1,100 right now. Uh, But uh, Mr. K. Schultz said, great content. I have been listening to Carrie's podcast for a few years. Haven't found a podcast that challenges, inspires, or convicts me in my own leadership more than his podcast does. Love this podcast. Thanks for that. And then uh, one more today from uh, Passer Dak, P-A-S-S-E-R-D-A-K. Applause, applause. He said, when the Gordon McDonald episode ended, I found myself clapping. Clapping in gratitude and recognition of Gordon's insights from an 80-year journey and identification with his decisions, the questions he had asked himself. Uh, Thanks so much for that. Well, thank you for leaving a rating and review. It really means a lot. I do read them, and it also helps uh, this show get noticed by other people who maybe could benefit from it. So, uh, man, my guest today is Louis Giglio. Louis and Shelly just finished hosting 60,000 people at the Mercedes-Benz Arena in Atlanta, really college students. And we talk about it in the interview. We were supposed to be there, and last-minute change of plans, uh, we decided not to go and stay home. Just wanted a little more time to connect with family and friends over the holidays this year. So I did miss it, but I heard it was amazing. And there are some incredible insights in this interview. I love the part where Louis and I talk about whether live events are dying. And I think, I think that alone is worth the price of admission, which of course, guess what, is free. So I think you're going to love uh, Louis Giglio. He is an author. He's a pastor. He is a creator of movements. I mean, I don't know. Louis doesn't really need an introduction, does he? He's, uh, he's an incredible leader. And if you are new to him, I know you're going to enjoy it. So uh, as you think about 2020 and what you need, do you ever find your staff getting overwhelmed with creative and media demands? Heard about a growing church with nine campuses that had a pretty big problem. They had an in-house team that was overwhelmed with the demands of media requests for graphics and videos. And listen, I have that problem on my own team too, right? So what do you do? Do you hire somebody? You just can't get it all done. So to solve the problem, they have done what a growing number of people are doing and what I'm doing, reaching out to Pro Media Fire to get a media bundle for each campus. They knew that hiring Pro Media Fire would get a media team for them for a fraction of the price of hiring additional staff. So whether you have a small staff, midsize, or even a large church, you could have the same problem. Pro Media Fire can solve this problem for you. You can hire an entire creative team of professionals for the fraction of the cost of hiring additional in-house staff. So 
Because you're a listener to this podcast, guess what? You get 10% off for life on any plan by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry. So head on over there now, 10% off for life at promediafire.com forward slash carry. And then back in August of last year, I shared with you that I was working on a few exclusive courses with my friends over at Ministry Grid. These are things only available through them. I will not make these available through my platform. Well, they're finally here. So for the month of January, you can go to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, access these brand new courses for free. These are three courses that cover common leadership challenges and how you can overcome them. It gets even better though. So if you complete any of the courses on Ministry Grid, their team will send you a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming, as a gift, no strings attached. So pretty cool offer. Head on over to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. Check out the free courses. While you're there, they got a full volunteer training library you can use at your church. My church loves their tool and we are using it at Connexus to help develop volunteers and leaders. Well, guys, that is a fun introduction to the second episode of this year. Uh, If you find this helpful, do share. And it's a real joy to bring you once again, Louis Giglio. Louis, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Carrie, it's great to see you as always. Yeah, yeah, good. We're going to be hanging out um, actually in a matter of weeks at Passion. Tell us a little bit about that. That's exciting. You guys are doing it at Mercedes-Benz Stadium again, and this time on New Year's Eve. That's right. That's a bit of a risk, right? Can you get people in a room on New Year's Eve? We'll find out. You know, I don't. <laughs> sometimes I wake up and think we've lost our mind, Carrie. But we, we take opportunity where they come. And for us, being in a stadium is helpful because we have a lot of people that want to be a part of Passion. So uh, last year we had, you know, 40-something thousand 18 to 25-year-olds in the event, but we couldn't get the stadium. So we had to go figure out how to link four venues together uh, via technology around the country so that we could have Passion. But every three or four years, the football stadium in our town becomes available, and it's not an annual guarantee. And Mercedes-Benz Stadium is only three years old, I think, and we've never had a gathering there before. It's, I believe, the premier venue in America. The Super Bowl was there last year. The Final Four basketball, college basketball, is going to be there in a few months after the new year. And the little window opened, and we went for it. But going for it, Carrie, meant that we had to start on New Year's Eve. And we have never had a New Year's Eve gathering for Passion before, ever. So it's all a lot of new things and a lot of big challenges. And we're just following God into it and believing for something really special. The thing that's crazy, Carrie, that no one is talking about is not only are we ringing in a new year at Passion, but we're ringing in a new decade And that decade is the 20s, the roaring 20s that we've (laughs) all heard about from way back in the day. Well, they're back. (laughs) And to think that we, all of us, are going into the 20s together, it's pretty special and I think going to be an incredible time. The the, the 1920s were one of the most defining decades in modern history for a lot of different reasons. Uh, jazz music was born, Art Deco was born, uh, and in, in the United States, women got the right to vote, um, and on and on and on. But I believe the 2020s, wow, that sounds cool. That does. I believe it's going to be one of the most uh, historic decades in the church. And uh, to kick it off together on New Year's Eve in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, we're 
we're beyond expectant. Oh, that's great. Well, Tony and I are really excited to be there. Probably the hardest question I'm going to throw at you in this interview is, uh, I know we're starting the 20s, but what on earth do you call the last two decades we've just been through? I've been talking to a few people about it. Were well, you know, that's the, the beauty of, yeah, like, that's what, that's what people really aren't talking about. They talk about the teens and the teens kind of make sense, but what you have to call the d- decade before are the 2000s. I know. That's what we're calling them right now. But that won't make any sense uh, 40 years from now yeah. because it'll all be the 2000s. So we've gone through two undefinable decades without even noticing, really. And I think there's going to be a collective sigh of relief when we enter into a definable decade. What, what would you do if you went to a party 20, 30 years from now, and it was the 2000 and teens party? You know, what, what would <laughs> yeah. you do? But if somebody yeah. invites you to a 70s party, you know what that means. You know what to do. Or totally. You're an 80s party or a 90s party. You know what that's about. So I think it's great to get back into a definable decade. And the fact that we're kicking it off with our eyes on Jesus and with um, a lot of our best friends. Wow, what a gift. You know, it's interesting because you have the ability or at least the track record of being able to fill venues. And one of the conversations I've been having with a lot of leaders this year, Louie, and you've seen this all around you, is that live events seem to be harder to fill up all the time just to, to even sell tickets. You know, whether that's to some extent pro sports, um, you got to have a really good team a really good sport to do that, but that's true of conferences too. And yet you continue to gather tens of thousands, perhaps 50, 60, 70, 80,000 young adults together New Year's Eve. Any thoughts on why that is still growing and why passion has so much momentum when a little bit like retail, a lot of live events are struggling? I'm, I'm just curious about that. Man, I, I don't know the answer. We we try not to overthink it too much, Carrie, yeah. and no to one just, wreck it, right? You know, yeah. to roll with it. Uh, but I do believe, and I, I don't really want to overstate this too much, but I, passion is not the byproduct of our incredible ideas or the fact that we're great marketers. It really has been from the beginning an anointing on passion. And the specific anointing, I believe, has been to gather people. And that is an anointing, and it's a gift, and it came from God, and we work really, really hard at it. But at the same time, I just think it's one of the graces, if you will, of passion. And a lot of people see it different. They say, oh, if you just put passion's name on it, you know, people are going to flock to it and fill up a venue. And as you would know, you know, people have no idea how hard you have to work to do anything, really, much less in an arena. But... You know, we have, as of a few days ago, Passion 2020 um, at the Benz became the largest passion event in history in 23 years. Already. It already is that. Six, seven weeks out when we're recording And um, I, I don't think any of us have an explanation for that other than we've been on our knees praying for things and asking God to do what only God can do. And He's doing that again. And I do think that, you know, Carrie, one of the things that we've learned, if if there is anything we've learned, is just doing the same thing over and over and over is very difficult, I think. It's a tough, that's a tough road to go down right now. But if you can keep kind of creating something that hasn't been done before, then it's a different, it's a different journey. And no one has ever been to Passion in Mercedes-Benz Stadium before. 
And no one has ever rung in a new decade at Passion before. And so it is, in a way, very different than everything else we've ever done. I'm just going to uh, throw a theory at you because I love thinking about this stuff, Louie. And I just want your honest reaction. And if you think, no, that's not it at all, that's that's fine. But I think because a lot of people who create live events from, and, and I'm talking about worship services and attendance to conferences to business leaders who are trying to get people in a room, you know, all the different people who listen to this podcast. I think we've all noticed that perhaps events that had a thousand people at them a decade ago have 500 people at them today. One of the theories I've heard or think about is, well, if it's just content, all of a sudden content is everywhere, right? Like we have YouTube, we have podcasts, we have, we have this, guess how much this uh, podcast costs to listen to? Zero dollars, Right. So it cost somebody, but didn't cost the user. So, you know, the incentive to gather for something like this is lower. But one of the things Passion, I think, has done really well, and I'll be anxious to attend it in person for the first time, but my perception is that you guys do an incredible job of creating a moment, an encounter, something that is transcendent. It's not just a whole bunch of seminars stacked, you know, a whole bunch of information stacked to each other. There's worship, but it's more than just singing. Do you want to talk about that? Like, is there a transcendent element to that? Because when I see young people gathering, uh, I, I, I sense that palpable hunger for transcendence. I'm just curious to get your take on that. Yeah, well, I think it's a brilliant observation. And I think there are two things, Carrie. One, I do think we're living in a time, um, and I know I agree with you 100% about the trends, but I also haven't seen a desire for gathering um, in our nation in a long time like there is right now. Yeah. It, it seemed like in the 80s, that was a thing. Uh, Promise mm-hmm. Keepers was born, and men just wanted to show up somewhere. I'll never forget being on the mall in Washington, D.C. for that Promise Keepers event. There there were legitimately over a million people there. Wow! I was there. I mean, I yeah. saw it with my own eyes. And my brain could not process the number of people that were there. I'd never seen that many people in one space before. You couldn't see the end of them, obviously, but your brain couldn't compute it. And I think there were similar gatherings in different segments of the culture. And then that kind of went away. But Mm -hmm. now you see, you know, high school kids want to march on Washington, talk about the safety of their schools. Um, big political gatherings are happening all over the world right now where people are gathering in the city square by the millions to say, we don't want this government or we do want this government. Hong Kong. And um, there was a big event in uh, Dallas a few summers ago, full stadium of people, things that we haven't seen in a while. And I think that it's part of, I think it's part of the landscape right now. People want the world to know we are here. And there's a lot of us. Mm. <laughs> we have a voice. And so we are in a culture of not uh, steady event attendance, but big moment event gathering momentum. That's happening nationwide in a lot of spheres right now. But I do agree 1,000% that what, what passion is aiming for is not just information. And the way I'd like to personalize it, Carrie, it's like, You know, some of the schools that I know of have thousands of Jesus followers on their campus, Mm -hmm. but most of the university campuses do not. And to provide a moment for a student to come from XYZ school where they know of maybe less than 50 or less than 20 committed followers of Jesus in the fabric of their campus community, 
to walk into a football stadium and to look yeah. around and to see I'm not alone. I am not the only person who believes Jesus is who he said he is. I'm not the only college student who thinks there are things worth staking your life on. And wow, I've never, I've seen stadiums full of people before, but I've never seen a stadium full of my face. And passion provides that moment where it literally, I think, I think it is literally the largest gathering of 18 to 25 year old Jesus followers, period. And to be able to stand in that moment, things happen that are intangible. Mm. And yes, I can listen to Christine Kane a lot of places, and I can hear yeah. John Piper speak, or I can hear this particular worship song sung, but I've never heard it sung with 70,000 people my age before. And I, it's not a goosebump moment, it's a goosebump conference. <laughs> you know? yeah. And yeah. so it is, it's the transcendence of, if you gather in my name, I'll be there in your midst, but something about 60,000 of you gathering in my name, it, it's powerful and palpable. And I do believe it's the X factor and it's the intangible that when you say to somebody, tell me about passion, and I think, I hope and pray this is for me and for you, Carrie, since we'll both be in that stadium, that when people say, tell me about passion 2020, I go, uh, nah, never mind, because <laughs> you know, there just, there really isn't a way in a sentence standing in a restaurant to convey what we experienced in that place together. You know, you've, you've helped me connect a few dots. Uh, I think there's, I'm going to be unpacking that answer for a while. Thank goodness we do transcripts for this show because I'm going to go back to those and look at what you just said because I think you just connected a lot of dots. That maybe gathering is not so much about information as it is about movements and moments. And you're right, there is something, whereas if you're trying to do the seminar that people used to attend live, they're not there as much, but there is way more taking it to the streets than there was even a decade ago. And uh, there is that palpable sense of moment and gathering that becomes, wow, that, you know what, that's really interesting. And I hope leaders are taking notes, particularly those of us who try to gather people on a regular basis. That's uh, anything else on that, Louis? That was so good. I think a great case study is our soccer team here in Atlanta, the Atlanta United and um, we were MLS champs last year, came close this year, but it is a, it has taken the city by storm. And yeah. we've broken every attendance record in the history of MLS. I mean, some games are 75,000 people there. Average game, there are 45,000 people there, 50,000 people there. And it's not uh, your old school ticket buyer, it's, it's young people. It's the hmm. people that you think you can't sell a ticket to, maybe. And it's a very diverse, um, you know, melting pot, if you will, of, of the city and of cultures and of streams. The, the experience of it is unbelievable. It, the soccer is great. And when a, a championship helps, but it's the experience. It's two hours of absolute community, togetherness, oneness, purpose, pandemonium, and expressiveness. And I've, I've never been to a sporting event like a Atlanta United game in America. And so somehow they tapped into, I think, all the things you're talking about. And I do really believe there's something underneath what you're saying that 
all of us need to learn from, especially those of us who host an event every single Sunday called church. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there is that sense of movements and moments and, uh, yeah, well, I'm going to have to think about that. I'll put that in my uh, trends post for 2020. That's awesome. So thank you. Thank you for helping me think through that. It's a conversation I keep having again and again and again, and that's a, that's a meaningful contribution to it. So before we hit record, you said that you spent some time on, on a break, like a sabbatical. And one of the episodes will link to all of your previous appearances on the podcast, but we talked about anxiety and, and breakdown and all of that stuff. And you said you feel different after that. Can you take us through that journey? Like you took a break, tell us about that, and then what you did and the difference it made. One of the crazy things we do is our church takes a, a Sabbath break every year, and we have fought for that hard, uh, meaning we take two Sundays off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of people have theological problems with that, uh, but we take two Sundays consecutively off, and Shelly and I give our team off the weekend between those two Sundays. So we shut this place down from a Friday all the way through that weekend, the next week, and the next weekend until that following Monday. And no ministries done, no work's done. There are no emails, no phone calls, no meetings, no gatherings. And we do it for a couple reasons, Carrie. We do it so that our door holders can take a break because we have an amazing army of people here that serve incredibly to make this thing work. But we do it as a theological statement. We're just trying to remind people that God is doing all this. And you have to make a big statement to get the attention of the neurotic, introspective human self. Uh, that thinks we are doing all this. And so we're trying to make a statement to people. God is the source of all this, and He's the engine behind it all. And it's going to keep going, even if we take a few weeks off. It allows Shelly and me to take a bigger break. And so in that same Sabbath window every year, we try to take an extended break, maybe several weeks worth. And oftentimes, Carrie, um, you know, we just are not kind to ourselves and leadership Mm -hmm. and I've gone into that break so many times with a writing deadline, and I've sworn, you know, that I'm not going to do a lot of writing, but hey, it's a break, and I have some time, and by the 10th or 12th or 15th day, I kind of want to do something, and so it's like, okay, here I go, and this year, I really fought like crazy to go into the break with no writing deadline, uh, which I was already past due on because I'm always past due on them. No, <laughs> hey, this has to get done and I'm going to squeeze some of it into here. And we literally just were able to downshift fast. And it was the quickest I've ever ever been able to rest. But I came out of it, Carrie, with this kind of mantra for me personally. And I, don't, I haven't really cataloged all this in my terminology mm-hmm. and thinking yet, but I just came out of it saying, I'm and I'm just being vulnerable because I really haven't talked about this, but I'm going to take a little pressure off myself uh, because my problems I'm discovering are not external pressures. They're internal pressures. It's me uh, pushing myself in, I think, in sometimes an unhealthy way to be the best whatever this is. Like, I would feel so much pressure to make this the best Carrie Newhoff podcast interview of all time (laughs) versus, uh, which I want it to be good and you want it to be good. We don't want people to, we don't want to waste people's time versus, and I know this could sound a little tricky, versus saying it's Carrie Newhoff. He's like a genius and I'm okay at doing some things. 
So if we have a conversation, it's going to help people. Hmm. That's different than, man, I, I've, I've put so much pressure on myself to get this just right so that Carrie thinks it's incredible. And everyone who listens to it thinks it's incredible. And I walked away going, that was incredible. Best of all time, best podcast ever. And then to walk out that door that I can see from here and walk right into the next thing I have and put the exact same pressure on myself again. And if you do that long enough, you are going to crack. And you're not going to point the fingers at, well, my schedule was too busy. My schedule doesn't bother me. I traveled too much. I love traveling. Mm. I actually am better traveling than when I'm at home. Um, so-and-so put this pressure on me. I'm like, nah, nobody, I'll tell you who puts pressure on me. Louis Giglio puts pressure on me. And so I've made a commitment coming out of Sabbath this year to put less pressure on myself because that is Sabbath. And to, I hate, I haven't talked about this out loud, so, no, but I'm willing to. Good. But really? to roll into a Sunday and not feel like in my 61st year of life and my whatever 35th year of ministry and my yeah. 11th year of preaching every single weekend practically at this church, that next Sunday has to be the best message I've ever preached before. Wow. So that I can hear somebody say, or I feel more importantly, Man, that was my best message of all time. And I just think it's okay sometimes to go, I worked hard on this. I studied my tail off. I prayed. I sought God. I brought my best, and I served the people. I'm just going to let that be enough today. And I know a lot of people have already been living that way a long time, but I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You hacked my head, uh, Louis. Thank you. I appreciate that, that you are not alone in that. And... I think there's a lot of leaders listening who can relate to that. You know, there was a moment in the early days of social media, Louis, where, uh, you know, it kind of got cool to say, hey, don't miss this Sunday. It's going to be the best Sunday ever, best Sunday ever. And I remember having to call an audible with my team. And this is like maybe six, seven years ago. And I'm like, guys, this just can't always be the best Sunday ever. Like it just it just can't feel like statistically that's not true. I'm not that smart. But that's that's an incredible load. And this ties into the message of your book, for those of you who are watching, Not Forsaken, which is a great book. Where does that pressure come from? Well, man, you know, not somewhere good, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and just to add to that one thought, you know, I because I'm I'm kind of working it out as we're talking. Mm. I think the reason why you didn't want to call that audible and why I don't really want to say out loud a lot, it doesn't have to be the best message ever. We're afraid somehow that we're going to fall off the other side of that pendulum swing into, um, hey, let's just fly by the seat of our pants. And I just want to, because we're on a leadership podcast, I just want to call out and call up the people who are flying by the seat of their pants and probably took a lot of joy in hearing us say, I'm going to put less pressure on myself because I am definitely not advocating flying by the seat of your pants and not putting your best effort forward. And so many people are skating by in the church doing that. So many pastors do that. And I, I don't want to be in that group. And I think that's why I kept pushing, 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 pushing to keep improving 
improving, 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 because I just don't, you know, you have this big fear that the, the alternative is I'm going to slide over here into skating by, and I definitely am not going to do that. But it's more of a mental shift. And why am I like that? And why are we like that? Uh, it's simply because we are trying to gain our self-worth by people's opinion or our own opinion. And we haven't completely come to find the rest in this big idea. I talk about this a little bit in Not Forsaken, but this moment where the dove ascends on Jesus and the voice comes down out of heaven and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I, I step back and I go, why? And kid hasn't walked on water. This kid hasn't raised the dead. This kid hasn't cast out a demon or multiplied bread or turned water into wine or even gone to the cross. Why are you so pleased? And I think that in that moment, Carrie, is where I've got to get. And it didn't minimize what Jesus was going to do. It just gave him the freedom of moving forward in his life with his father's blessing, not moving forward in his life so to get the father's blessing. Mm. And I think in that is, is the place that you find true rest, not lack of work, but true inner, inner peace. And that's what you and I and all of us were created for, was to hear our father say, Go for it. I, I talked about it in, in another book, uh, leading a devotion for the United States Olympic swimming team right before they mm. went to Rio. And, and I just said to them, I just pray that when you look down on that platform, right before that beep sounds and you take off in, into the water, that on that platform, you'll see the word acceptance. And you'll know that you're swimming from acceptance by God, not for acceptance by God. And I think if we can put that into practice every day, it changes the rhythm, the internal rhythm of our lives. I think what you're sharing is so huge and thanks so much for going there. Um, I'll go first. So my fear, because I, I have the same thing where I put an incredible amount of pressure on myself. I don't need anybody else to put pressure on me. I'm perfectly capable of generating it all by myself, no matter where I am, what I'm doing on vacation. When I've really drilled down on that, and the question, I guess, Louis, is, you know, what's underneath that? Is there a fear? My fears would be, uh, I, I'm afraid I'm lazy. And I've said that out loud to my team, and they laugh in my face. My wife laughs in my face. She's like, you are, you're like the furthest from lazy you can get. But I'm deep down, I'm afraid I'm lazy. And secondly, that my life isn't going to matter for anything, which isn't really, like you said, that is not from a good place. When you look at that, is there like a fear or is there something that would drive that that you've been able to put your finger on or is it just something you're processing? Well, I think it, it all ultimately goes back to the way all of us grew up and, you know, how we scrapped and clawed or how we processed how we were going to become someone that mattered mm -hmm. and who, who was that someone going to be. And I don't really, I haven't done enough self-diagnosis to really shrink that down into a sentence or two. I talked about in Goliath Must Fall that the things I think that pushed me into my depression were not realizing how much I was dependent on uh, other people's approval and control. Uh -huh. And um, I think 
control and, and approval is a, it's a bad combination, period. <laughs> it's a real yeah. bad combination for a pastor and a church planner because you learn real fast you're not in control of a lot and you're 100% not going to get everyone's approval on hardly anything. And so th- that's a bad combination. But I think what we're talking about is even a layer deeper than that. And I think it's me growing up wanting to know, am I good enough? And uh, does my dad think I'm good enough? And do I measure up to other people? And, you know, I'm not the son of a pastor who's the son of a pastor. And so many of my friends are the son of a pastor who's the son of a pastor. I didn't have, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I didn't have someone who built a ministry and a platform, and then I was born into that, and now I've inherited that. And I think for me, Carrie, and I'm just being vulnerable because somehow I think when you and I talk, it just seems like it's always kind of legit. But I just kind of feel like I've always been uh, the street guy, you know, like I got to figure this out and I got to start from scratch and I've got to make this work. And it's kind of me. And I have had great mentors and great encouragers along the way, but... um, you know, there's no such thing as a self-made man. There's definitely no such thing as a self-made follower of Jesus. But I do feel like I've plowed a lot of ground and tried to figure a lot of things out, Shelly and I together. I, obviously, she's been a part of it, all of it. But um, the pressure of, okay, I got to keep this going and sustain it, uh, especially when there's been a lot of God's blessing in it that I didn't have anything to do with. And then you sort of take take the ownership of, I've got to keep keep up the blessing that God has so graciously given instead of going, look, God is the one who's graciously blessed. Let's let God keep blessing, and I'm going to take a little pressure off myself. Hmm. That's good. And you talk about that in the book, right? You talk about telling your dad who wasn't necessarily, you know, a Christian, attended church occasionally, but really was more into the design world, claimed to fame, designed the Chick-fil-A logo, right? That we Hello. all know and love and and all that, that you were going to be a pastor and you knew that you stood a chance of rejection on that. And uh, do, you, do you want to tell that story? And then maybe does that relate in any way to what we've been talking about? Because it really resonated with me. And I have a dad who's extremely supportive but um, yeah, there's something about us, me, that is always seeking my dad's approval, which I thought was a well, brilliant Well, that's true. I insight. think for all of us, you know, everybody on the planet is in that same boat. Um, one of the things I loved about the book, this um, article on psychology today, Peggy Drexler interviewed 75 high-achieving women, I mean, crushing it in life. And a lot of them had horrible relationships with their dads. But every one of them, she said viewed their success through the lens of what does my father think? And people can deny that, but I I think that's true of all of us. And, you know, the Sunday I told my dad that I was going to publicly respond to the call to preach on Sunday night at church, as as we did in the day. Um, And I said, Dad, I really want you to be there. Well, I asked him at like 2.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday, and chances were slim. And that was my fault that I didn't give him, you know, a few days heads up to think it through. And I announced that I was going to become a pastor at the same time I was inviting him to the church service that night, you know, yeah. when I was going to make it public. And so he he didn't show that night. But it wasn't that. It was that we never talked about it. And we just didn't have that kind of common ground. We didn't have that open door of communication. And 
We never talked about it, honestly. But we did have closure. My dad became disabled, and many, many years later, I came back to preach for Dr. Stanley on Father's Day, no less, and I was mm-hmm. preaching a shrunk-down version of Not Forsaken all the way back then on Father's Day, and this is in uh, the early 90s. And my dad came to church with my mom that morning, and he came in his wheelchair sat at the end of the aisle. My mom was there. She hadn't been attending church because she'd been 24-hour caregiver for him for years. Um, But I preached this father's message, this perfect father message. And I didn't preach a perfect message in case somebody didn't hear that right. (laughs) I preached a perfect father message. And I never looked over there at my dad because I was so nervous. And I was preaching for Dr. Stanley for the first time at First Baptist, and I was so nervous. Hmm. But the that message ended, and my dad was awesome, by the way. He didn't, you know, punch me or shove me across the room when I told him I was going to become a pastor like somebody's dad probably did. But I walked over there after all the people cleared out, and I said, Dad, I mean, I almost choked up just, just saying, thank you for coming. I said, thank you so much for coming today. And he grabbed my hand and looked up at me with this amazing smile, and he said, are you kidding me, Ace? That was the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Wow. And my dad died a few years after that. It's the only time my dad ever heard me preach in a church in his life. And uh, that affirmation he gave me, A, I think he was saying that message was great because my dad, and we can talk about it in a minute, but my dad didn't have a dad and felt completely abandoned by his dad. And I only knew that because of his disability and some conversations we had in that season of life. But I think the message really touched him that day. Hmm. But I think what really inspired him that day was he's like, dang, my kid can like talk, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And he was was such a steward of language and creativity and storytelling that I think he just was like, wow, man, that, that was amazing. And I, that was enough for me. That really, that one moment was enough for me to know that every time I'm preaching, and communicating the gospel, um, doing what I'm called to do, I have the affirmation of my dad. Um, I think maybe that extra pressure is just wanting to make sure I keep making him proud and keep making everyone proud and keep making myself proud, you know, time in and time out. Mm. You, uh, you write in the book, your dad, I don't know whether it was on his deathbed or shortly before he died, told you something about his own childhood and his relationship with his dad, right? That which probably Yeah, my dad had had a couple of, of different these, yeah. brain surgeries, and we were sitting in the hospital after the second one, and it's just me and him, and he'd been through a lot. I mean, I, I don't want to get into all that, but I mean, he'd been through so much pain, like literal physical pain, hardship, disability, loss, lost his vision, a lot of it, lost the ability mm-hmm. to go to work, play golf, walk, drive a car, live a normal life, and we were in another one of these really tough spots, and he has bandage wrapped around his head and, you know, he didn't really have a close walk with Jesus. And I'm just telling him again in this room, I said, Dad, I just want to tell you how much God loves you. And I know this is hard, hard season of life, but God loves you and he's for you and he gave everything he had for you. And my dad looks at me and he goes, again, he goes, Ace, he said, no one ever loved me and no one ever wanted me. 
And he was referring to his parents. And I, I knew my dad didn't grow up with his mom and dad. And he got passed around to these different relatives and lived with his aunt and lived with his grandmother. But he never talked about it. And this was the first time that it just cracked open. And he said, no one ever loved me and no one ever wanted me. But it was his add-on, Carrie. He said, and I don't believe God loves me either. And I was like, okay, well, I have no response for that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. there are tears like welling up in my eyes, and I, I'm just speechless, and my heart is just crushed hearing my dad say that. But you know, in a sentence, it like all of a sudden his entire life with me clarified, and I'm like, oh, now I understand everything about our lives that we've lived together up to mm. this point. I was probably. Uh, mid-30s at that point, I guess. And I was like, okay, I get it all now. You have been swimming upstream your whole life. And, you know, Carrie, I don't ever want to give people the sense in this book that we just need to let our parents off the hook. Or if your dad hurt you or wounded you or was abusive toward you, you just need to brush that off. We don't. We don't want to brush one thing under the rug. But I think by the grace of God, because we're all redeemed and redeemed, and, and renewed in Christ. And we, we have all these advantages. Like I had so many advantages my dad did not have. Mm-hmm. That those of us who are alive in Jesus, we need to look at our parents maybe and just kind of look through some of the hardship and go, man, what were they dealing with? And I don't think it excuses anything. That's very important to keep underlining that. It doesn't excuse anything, but I think it just ups our capacity to be compassionate toward them. And from that moment on in my dad's life, I said, by the grace of God, I am going to pour out on you as much of a blessing as I can. I can't go back and be your dad and give you the blessing he never gave you. And his dad died when I was a baby. So that wasn't even possible for my dad to get his dad's blessing anymore. But I spent the last few years of his life just pouring back up the family tree, Carrie, a blessing Mm. that in some ways didn't come down the family tree because I'm in a new family tree. And I've got all kind of resources that I could give back to my dad. And I'll tell you one thing. I don't know that he had a great giant conversion with Jesus before the end of his life, but he knew he was loved. He heard he was loved. He knew he was valuable. He knew that he was prized and wanted. And um, and he heard that consistently from his son. And um, I pray that through that, he heard it from his heavenly father. Hmm. That is That is powerful. Uh, and I'm so thankful you had that moment. Um, I think about the the way you trace out in Not Forsaken because it it triggered me. And I had great, very supportive parents. They're still alive today. I'm very fortunate. Talk to them multiple times a week and see them as often as possible. And and it was you know it was one of those stories where I think I was really fortunate. We weren't raised in an abusive home, you know, loving home. But there was something in me as a kid, and this is some of my, you know, and God redeems all things. He really, really does. But I think I confused um, love with performance. In other words, oh, if I get good grades, like, you know, my stock goes up, so to speak, or whatever, right? It seems to be, seems to be extra special. And I think the enemy loves to work with that stuff and mess in our heads and all that. And my parents love me no matter what, but somehow I got that confused as a kid and it drove a lot of my leadership, you know, ultimately to a place of burnout around 40 
and then I've been reconstructing it. But that, hence that internal pressure. And I had to like spend a lot of time trying to figure out, oh, performance addiction, that's an issue. Like that's an issue. Do you, I think you make a really great case in the book that a lot of us, when we look at that wound, what we didn't get or what we did get that we shouldn't have gotten, that somehow that, that drives a lot of behavior. Like that study you quote in the book about high achieving women who still run everything through the lens of what their father would think rather than their husband, their boyfriend, you know, themselves or, or whatever. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because, you know, I've done hundreds of these interviews now, and I think most of us are driven by something. And uh, sometimes it's redeemed and sometimes it's healthy. But a lot of times in my cases, it's like, ooh, there's some stuff under there if you want to have a look. Yeah, I think that, I think intrinsic in people is a desire to know that they have pleased their dad mm-hmm. um, or that they are pleasing to their dad, to say it even a different way. It's one thing to please your dad, um, but it's one thing to know that you are pleasing to your dad, that your dad has chosen to participate in your life because he sees in you beauty and value and something that he wants to be a part of. And I think if that's not there, you have to honestly admit that there's a gap. And yes, we can overcome that gap in lots of different ways, but we can't erase it. And I think it, it drives us at, down at our core of asking big questions like, if I am good enough, then why did my dad go live with a different family? Mm. If I am valuable, then why didn't my dad show up more often? Why did it seem like he wanted to be away at work more than he wanted to be where I was or involved in my life? Or why couldn't he tell me that he loved me? Uh, I know he showed me that he loved me, but why couldn't he just tell me? It would have been nice just to hear him say it. And I think that drives all of us. And I think the beauty of this book and of this story, Carrie, I'm is that we have a God in heaven who's the creator of the universe, but who has chosen to reveal himself to us as a father so that mm-hmm. all of us can make the transition, no matter what kind of earthly fathers we've had, good or not good, that we can all transition to a father who is wanting to be a part of our lives, who is actually using words when he tells us how he feels about us, and who is dependable and isn't going to walk out the door and hasn't walked out the door is proved. I'm not walking out the door. I've, you've given me a thousand reasons to, but I'm still here. And to make that transition, and as we say in the book, to kind of move through the fog of, you know, seeing God as the reflection of my earthly father to the clarity of seeing God as the perfection of my earthly father. This is the transcendent moment in life, I believe, and it opens up a part of our heart that's different than just believing the right things, having good orthodoxy, um, serving in a church, and joining a community of faith. It opens up something in our heart um, that allows all the intangible pain and desire that was in us from birth to kind of spill out into the conversation, into the equation, and to be found and met and embraced and reciprocated by a God who is just and sovereign and holy and a creator, but he's a just father. He's a sovereign father. He's a gracious father. He's a powerful father. He's Jehovah who's a father. And it changes everything about the ebb and flow of our lives. 
You know, I'm sure the conversation, the dialogue around paternal language and so on and so forth, but there is something you argue, and I'm not disagreeing with you, that about the blessing from the father. How is that different from the blessing of a parent or a mother? Any any thoughts on that? Well, I'm not a sociologist by trade, and so I don't want to be too authoritative, but um I think a lot of I think a lot of people can give you a blessing in your life, and I think that uh, to say that a mother can't give a formative blessing to her children is obviously to undermine the beauty of mothers and the power of mothers. And I think a mother's force in our lives is a whole thing unto itself. Mm-hmm. But it's just undeniable uh, to talk about what happens in a kid before they even know what's supposed to be happening, when their dad shows up into a moment. Yeah. There, there is a noticeable difference. And I can't explain that, um, but I don't think it minimizes dads or moms. I think it just is the beauty of family, which is yeah. I have a dad who somehow has this God-given ability to bless our family uh, this is what we see in Scripture. Um, we, we see the Father's blessing coming down from the fathers to the sons, and there's something profound about that. And then we see moms who, I believe, at the bedrock give kids the ability to believe. Mm. Um, and that's what I would say I got from my mom is belief, and a lot of kinds of belief. Belief in God, belief in myself, belief in, in what the purpose and plans of God were for my life. And so that blessing and belief combined is the best case scenario, right? For every mm. kid to know I have this nurturing, because uh, uh, moms aren't limited to nurturing, but they are nurturers. And mm-hmm. they, in the normal sense of time and space, they raise up kids and breastfeed them and nurture them. <laughs> yeah. And this is the way life normally works. And that blessing that a dad can give and that belief that a mom can provide, and then the crossover blessing and belief from both of them, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's the best case scenario for all of us. A passion uh, last year, 2019, you mentioned two predominant issues facing the current generation. And you're thinking primarily of college students and young adults, which is you identify them as fatherlessness and anxiety. Can you tell us a bit more about that, those two issues? I mean, I know we've talked a lot about fatherlessness, but do you want to share a little more on that? And then anxiety that if you're looking at young adults and some of you are parenting as leaders, that age demographic like I am, and some of you, you're in that. Well, the vast majority of this podcast listenership is young leaders. So they'll identify fatherlessness and anxiety. Do you want to talk a little bit about why? Well, I just and was how? trying to couple those two ideas, Carrie, that I think they are connected they, they are separate, but they are also connected. And obviously, anxiety is a thing. And um, man, I just pray God is turning the tide somehow in the next decade that we're just not going to ad hoc give anxiety a seat at every family table. That's what's mm. happened now. And I don't believe that's God's best plan for all of us. And so I'm trusting over the next decade, somehow we're going to remove that chair and go back to the, the family sitting around a table together without the, oh, and of course we have anxiety at the table because <laughs> we all do. 
But I was trying to connect the dots maybe between the two, Carrie, that I think there is a strong sense of that covering that comes from knowing that there's a dad present, visible, active, and articulating in your life. And I think something about that does give a, a backstop, if you will, to all of us. Um, and this is, I think, what God wants to do for me. He's sending me out into environments every day that should make me anxious. Louis, go do this. Right. Go to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and invite a generation to ring in a new decade. That should make me anxious. And it should make me lose sleep at night, and it should make me lose my mind, ultimately. The reason I'm not doing that is because my father asked me to do that, and he's big and strong and able, and he's got me. He is a backstop for me and our organization. He is a backstop for the vision that he asked us to join him in. He's a backstop on our finances. He's a backstop on our abilities and our energies and our efforts. And it gives me a sense of peace knowing that my dad is in this with me. And I say dad loosely. I don't think I'm not that comfortable calling dad, God, my dad. Uh, But my father, I'll go there, my Abba, that's close to dad. Hmm. He's got it. And I think if you take that and translate it down to, I'm a sophomore at college right now, and there's a lot of things going on. But all I have to do is pick up this phone and call my dad. Or I just got married, and it is craziness, but all I have to do is just pick up this phone and call my dad. Or, man, we just bought a new house, and da-da-da-da-da, blah, 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 blah. But all I have to do is just pick up the phone and call my dad, and he is going to be level-headed, full of wisdom, uh, not a pushover. He's going to show up. He's going to be excited. He's going to help. And he's going to provide a backstop for me. Not a bailout, but a backstop. Those are two completely different Ooh. things. Yeah. And I think when you have a dad that provides a backstop for you, then you're more apt to want to go out and pitch a baseball, uh, knowing that you're not going to have to chase it all the way down a mile down through the neighborhood um, if the guy doesn't hit it. And so I think that's an anxiety lowerer for this generation. It is a whole lot of other things involved in the technology side of it and the community side of it and the brain shift side of it. And all those things are real, but come on, let's just put a dad in the equation who is sober Hmm. and not overly needy and isn't in competition with his own kids and isn't in debt up to his eyeballs and loves God and has wisdom and is available. You uh, just reduced anxiety in a kid's life by about 500%. Do you have any other thoughts about needy parents? It's really interesting. My wife and I talk about it. Our two boys are in their 20s, 27 and 23. And it's really interesting to see at this stage of life, because as just you know, being transparent, as parents, we just always thought, we never thought to this stage of life, we thought we'd be dead, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and, you know, your kids are going to be home forever. And then you're like, actually, both of them are in Southeast Asia right now. And so, you know, we're on WhatsApp uh, messaging back and forth and stuff like that. But and having a good time. But like, you you know, you realize, oh, there are parents who live vicariously through their kids and they need to have them nearby or they need to have them here. Do you want to I mean, because you deal with college students all the time. What impact does that have on, you know, young adults when the parents are needy? Yeah, well, you know, we don't have any biological children, so I'm I'm not allowed to speak to parenthood or 
<laughs> to give well, you advice. come on. I mean, you've you've got eighty thousand saying that tongue in stadium. I'm you've, saying you've that had a little cheap. bit of experience. Probably that makes you better at observing it because yeah. uh, because you you have a you have a, a more objective perspective. Yeah, I think that you know the answer. I was just being a little bit tongue in cheek, but I think that it's not so much about being a needy parent as it is just about being a needy person. Ah. And a needy person that happens to be a parent is a needy parent. A needy person who is a partner in a business happens to have a needy partner in my business. Um, I think it's about being needy. And I think that, I don't know, for whatever reason, it seems like the last little go-round, as life has moved forward, has produced more needy people, period. All of us seem like we're more needy. Maybe we're not. It just seems like we are. And a lot of those people are the parents of kids. And, you know, those kids have been swept into uh, what mom and dad is all about. But I think for me, I'll tell you a parallel for me. I remember being a young communicator, Carrie, and uh, just wanting to be a super cool young communicator. That was kind of like my goal in my late (laughs) 20s, early 30s. It's a great goal. And um, through my 30s, it was same, you know, I'm going to go speak at an event. It's mostly young people. There's, you know, whatever, 500 or 5,000 people there. And so I've got to drop all my references and all my cultural this and wear something cool and let people know I'm cool and, hey, everybody, I'm cool. And then I remember talking to somebody who looked at me and said, you know, um, when, I'm, when I'm old like you, and I was like, I'm, I'm 31 years old. <laughs> And some 17-year-old is telling me now when I'm old like you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, so you don't really think I'm cool. And I think people may think you're cool for an old person, but they think you're cool for an old person. (laughs) They don't think you're cool. And so somehow I started having this awakening like, A, I'm not cool, and they know I'm not cool. I mean, street cred, legit cool. I'm cool for 61 years old. Because, you know, I get around people my age and I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. But I'm not street legit cool to a college student, except for now I'm gaining some more credibility and coolness because of my age, actually. Mm -hmm. But when you're 35, 40, 45, the best lesson you can learn is I don't need to be cool. They already know I'm not cool. I need to be authentic. I need to be genuine. I need to be real. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what relates to people, not trying to be cool. And... I think that if all of us embrace that, if you're a mom or dad out there, whatever age, you're a young leader in your team and you're trying to be cool in your team every time you have a team meeting, you're trying to prove how cool you are, that's just a waste of time because uh, what people want is an authentic leader. They want a genuine leader, a genuine parent, an authentic parent. Um, And I think that when I got comfortable with being older, Everything shifted inside of me. So I just want to encourage, it's hard to do, but I want to encourage younger people to get comfortable with being older. And if you're, it's an advantage. And I think it lowers this weirdness of, you know, me being needy. Good insight, Louie. I want to go back to where we started as we kind of wrap up. So you had that Sabbath season that was different than other seasons. And that was months ago, weeks ago? How long ago was that? that? Uh, months ago. A month ago. So it's early days. No, months ago. Months, yeah. months. Okay, so, but it's still early days. This isn't like a five-year track record or anything. What's what's the difference? What how are, how are you different now? Like, obviously it made a shift deep enough to talk about. What are, what are you sensing? What are you feeling? 
Um, well, I don't know if it's been long enough for me to say that, but um, simple answer, uh, less pressure mm. and more delight. Um, I've been working it out myself, Carrie, and again, here I am talking about something I'm not talking about, but the way I'm working it out myself is um, around the two ideas of duty and delight. And I got into what I do out of delight. Like there was a day when you told me I was going to get to go and preach to a bunch of young people. You might as well have told me that I had uh, was having dinner with Roger Federer. Right. I mean, I was so fired up and so excited and so grateful and delighted. Delight is the right word. Not happy, delighted that I'm getting to do this. And then somewhere along the way, you migrate to, to duty. And duty is the weight and the obligation and the, the grind, if you will. And so I'm trying to migrate my way back to delight where I started. Um, to walk into church Sunday uh, in just a few days from this podcast and actually have a sense of delight in what I get to do. And so I asked the question, what's killing my delight and turning my delight into duty? And I thought, well, is it because I have to do it every week? Uh, No, I've really been preaching every week my whole life. That's not new to Passion City Church. Is it uh, the pressure that Da, 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 da. No, the thing that's turned my delight into duty is me. <laughs> it's my <laughs> putting too much pressure on myself has turned the delight into duty. So by alleviating some of the pressure and working Sabbath through more of the layers, it's moving me and migrating me back over towards the delight side of things. And I really think to answer your question, that's the difference. The difference is I feel more delight in what I'm doing right now and less duty in what I'm doing. I'm still doing just as much, still working just as hard, Uh, actually working a little less hard, to be honest, trying to take a few less meetings, clog the days up a few few meetings less, not squeezing and shoehorning something into every possibility. And that's a key thing, Carrie, we didn't touch on, but leaders in the Instagrammable age— do have FOMO. I hate that term, but it is real. And what FOMO causes leaders to do is to say yes to things that are stupid. And um, like, um, hey, I just got invited by important person X to come to their ranch for a small gathering of three other important people, and only four people got invited. And wow, that's cool. And it's next Thursday. And I'm going to have to cancel three meetings, fly all night long, get there, ride on a mule through a snowstorm. But man, I'm going to be there. And I'm going to tell everybody I was there. And then I'm going to have to take six flights to get home, one of them through Roanoke, Virginia. And then I'm going to get back just in time to get into that meeting. But oh my word, am I going to have an experience? And uh, if you called Louie up three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, 100%, I'm riding a mule through a snowstorm. You call me up today and I'm like, oh my goodness, that is the dumbest thing I've ever thought of. No, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to do that. And I got to actually put that to the litmus test three days ago. And I just was like, ah, and I used to say, let me check my schedule. 
Right. Well, I used to right. say, yes, I'll fix my schedule. <laughs> and then I said, let me check my schedule. Now I'm just saying, no. And I don't mean that on the big grand ride through the snow. I mean, like on the day to day, just create more space, just create a little more space. And uh, wow, what a concept. I might, I might like 61. <laughs> I had two words that have been floating in my head that are a little bit parallel. And it's uh, like, this is my reformed roots, but glorify and enjoy uh, from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Glorify wow. and enjoy. The Love chief it. end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I was okay at the glorify. I sucked at the enjoy. And wow. I'm like, what is that, right? But I love your delight and duty, duty and delight. Uh, I, th- I think that's that's really good. I'm, somewhere in this office, one day we'll hang uh, just those two words, glorify and enjoy. And uh, I, I always have to work on the second, but it's really good. Like God doesn't want us to be miserable and we forget that, right? And leadership yeah. doesn't have to be miserable. We forget that. That's so good, Louis. Yeah, I had a friend send me a text uh, just checking on me a few days ago. Um, it's a leadership podcast, so I have to drop a name, you yeah. know, super well-known person that everyone on this podcast knows. And uh, anyway, they were just checking on me because that's kind of the way they are. They're, they're a really good person like that. They don't typically text and ask for things. They just text and say, how are you? And this person texts and said, how are you? And then they asked me this question, which, you know, used to, this would have annoyed me like 10 years ago. Uh, but the question was, are you being kind to yourself? Hmm. And this is this is in the framework of where I want to get to in life. Um, and again, that feels like a slippery slope, right? To, as you said, the fear of being lazy or being a skater. But I just was arrested by the question and I was like, wow, I'm trying super hard to be kind to everyone else. I'm going to try harder to be kinder to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a game-changing decision. And if Those people are, are listening questions. to this and like, oh, my word, I understand you guys. Some of you are going, I don't really understand all that. Um, but if you really are, this is grabbing your heart right now, man, what a great thought to be less hard on yourself, put less pressure on yourself, and to be kinder to yourself. I think this could be the winning trifecta for a lot of people in leadership today. Well. And you want to be in and you want to finish strong, right? Like at 54 or 61, you you want to, I mean, you don't want to be a casualty. You don't want to be a stat. And, you know, I think it's possible because you look at people like Eugene Peterson or even I interviewed Gordon McDonald recently for the podcast. And it's like, you know, 70 doesn't, isn't miserable necessarily. You can have more joy at 70 than you have <laughs> Are at you 60. Are you kidding? And 80. 70 80. looks awesome from here, bro. <laughs> Louis, this is great. Hey, the book is called Not Forsaken. It's your latest uh, passion. People people should get into passion to ring in a brand new decade, the roaring 20s, the roaring 2020s. What's the website for that? Yeah, just passionconferences.com is the way to find out about the gathering at the Benz. And louisgiglio.com is a real simple one-stop all to find out about passion, about not forsaken and everything else we've got going on right now. Anything else to share, Louis, before we wrap up? This has been a joy. It always no, is. just I, I, I always enjoy talking to you and um, just grateful for what you do and who you are. Thank you very much. Thanks, my friend. Take care. 
Well, that was Rich. And if you want a little bit more, this episode is on YouTube. Uh, Louie and I filmed it, um, yeah, via Skype. But anyway, we have that at uh, my channel on YouTube. We also have transcripts for you and show notes. You can find everything by going to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 314. That'll help you with that. And uh, we are back next week with a fresh episode that I am so excited about. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Uh, In the meantime, do check out what our partners are offering this week. 10% discount for life on any plan you acquire by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry. And then Ministry Grid has got some free courses I did just for them at ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. You get that free only for the month of January. Plus you get a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming, as a gift. That's, uh, That's pretty cool. Coming up next week, who have we got? We've got Liz Forkin Bohannon. She is an entrepreneur. She's a CEO. Uh, she is committed to justice. And if you were at the Global Leadership Summit last August, uh, you will recognize her. She gave a talk that people raved about. And um, we have a wide ranging conversation on so many things. And here's an excerpt. Like maybe you're just like kind of average. But like, if you, if you're the one that stays curious, if you're the one that keeps getting up after everybody else is like, uh, you know, this failure was too much. That was too embarrassing. The risk is too high. Like you actually will be the one that goes on and builds something really extraordinary, but it's not because you're innately extraordinary. It's just because you might be a little bit grittier and more curious, um, and have a little bit more evolved of an ego, frankly, that doesn't need to prove to the world how special and unique you are. Man, I'm so pumped about our guests for 2020. Also coming up on the show, John Mark Comer, Jefferson Bethke, Jenny Allen, Craig Groeschel, uh, James Emery White, Claire Diaz-Ortiz. We got Gary Thomas, Mark Driscoll. So many more. Man, I am pumped, guys. Oh, yeah. And did I tell you, we also just landed Near AL. So Near wrote the book Hooked. He also wrote the book Undistractable, which I think is a fantastic book. We And we got Chick-fil-A's Mark Miller, Bobby Herrera, and so many more. Guys, it's going to be a great year. If you subscribe, if you share, you do all those things, it makes such a big difference. And thank you so much for listening. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.